Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another uh, weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined as always by my munificent co-host, the munificent Mr. Mark Yusko. <laughs> what do you ah, think of that alliteration? I love it. I love it. And, uh, you know, Michael, I, I had this idea, right? I just realized, mm. you know, when we were talking about kind of viewership and you guys wrote this article and I got this great engagement and mm. um, the biggest grossing YouTuber, right, mm. is the kid who opens packages on air. Really? Right? No kidding. Like 20 million bucks a year. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> And um, so I thought what we should do is like, we should do that. Like we should create a box of it. I said, ah, we're not going to do that. But we can do my sock reveal. So we can just do the sock reveal. So today, yes, Mark, we've got yes. old school, okay, the original Bitcoin logo before it turned orange. I got the orange pants. But that's, that's going to be our, our magic box. You know, I was literally going to ask you what socks you're wearing today. I was literally going to ask you. Great minds what think socks. alike. We, we are we are one mind. Seriously, one hive mind here. Hive mind here. Um, all right, we do have a lot of interesting charts to get into today, so I want to jump right into it. I'm going to do this thing where I struggle to share my screen, like I do every week. All right, this is the sh the share of U.S. Uh, oh, got U.S. in there twice, but uh, the retired population in the U.S. It is interesting. So you're looking at 2015 to 2021. It was creeping up already. That was the trend from about 17 percent. Uh, if we'd stuck to the the pre-COVID trend, we would have been at around 19%, but we've seen a jump about another half a percent there. And I guess, you know, the takeaway from this chart one uh, is the demographics problem that you consistently highlight, which is, I think is yep. completely right, very useful. And the other thing is that people are retiring post-COVID. There's another, you know, Mark Cuban tweeted this thing out. It actually had to do with crypto, which is, you know, it's something like 4%, you know, some, some large percentage of people are actually retiring because of the money that they made off crypto. And you look at that as, as being one of or, or retreating from the workforce in some sort of, um, you know, semi-permanent way. And, you know, you could look at that as one of two ways, which is that's ridiculous. That's very speculative. Paul Krugman, Paul Krugman tweeted out, we're doomed, uh, you know, when these uh, when the mayor of New York started taking a payment in Bitcoin. Um, or you can just look at it as kind of this natural trend, which is just people don't like a lot of the jobs that are available right now. And they're kind of rebelling uh, against the opportunity. So and, uh, what a do you more sinister take. Mm. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> sinister this morning. Is, this is part of the plan, right? This is the dictator playbook. Um, the dictator playbook is you concentrate the power and wealth in your cronies, and you go from capitalism to cronyism. And I say this all: the capitalism is the is basically the only good ism. I mean, there's probably mm. some other ism, but fascism and socialism, all those other isms are bad. But capitalism is a good thing cronyism is a horrible thing and that's what we have today and that's where all dictatorships go and that's why all empires fall is is cronyism and part of the plan of cronyism is you concentrate the wealth at the top and then you devalue the currency and impoverish the masses and then you hand them out money to make them dependent on you and that's exactly what this is and so this, look, you know, crypto millionaires, awesome. It's awesome. I, mm. I, you know, it is a, it's a wealth transfer from people who, you know, 
were willing to take the risk to in, embrace a new technology. Okay, but I'm talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana. The Dogecoin and Shibu shit? Dog shit, literally dog shit. Mm -hmm. And it will go away. Those things will go away. And so if people think they can retire on that, I wish them luck. I hope they convert to fiat soon. Human decision-making is complicated in general. And, you know, the, you could very well draw a line to what's happening now back to the bread and circuses idea of Rome. And, you know, if, if you actually go back and read about ancient Rome and the transition from a republic to an empire, it was a pretty complicated period of time. It happened over the span of about 90 years uh, of civil war. And there was actually a lot of good evidence that the first emperor of Rome, Augustus, wanted to convert things back into a republic, but he was fearful for his own life uh, to actually do that. And the, the resultant, you know, transition in power structure, if he were to try to actually implement something like that. And I think, you know, another good example that you could look at of these decisions just being very complicated is what the Federal Reserve is doing. The Federal Reserve is trying to hold together, in my opinion, the economy. There's just a complete lack of structural growth due in part to, you know, this deflation that we've been seeing, the turnover in demographics and technology deflation, etc. And they had to make a a choice. Uh, it was it was a choice uh, with a series of bad different options, but they chose to basically inflate the price of financial assets and continue to keep everything afloat. And on the one hand, the oh. economy is continuing to march forward, but at the same time, they are now going to have to deal with the other shoe dropping. And I think I kind of I kind of think that's how I view a lot of what's going on right now. I think our the people in power are faced with a series of bad decisions, and it's unclear that they're making the right trade offs. I think that's yeah. My, look, my I. So many things here. So one, I, I, I just love hanging out with you because you are you know, a brilliant student of history and, you, and the liberal arts. And, and look, investing is the last liberal art. I mean, it's mm -hmm. literally uh, liberal arts is, and, and science are, are the best training for investing. Uh, and with history, like Churchill said, you know, the farther back you look, the farther forward you can see. Yeah. And so your, your analysis is spot on, except again, you're such a nice, person and believe the best in people. Nope. Nope. Federal Reserve was created to steal wealth from the masses and give it to the poor. Mm. I mean, to the to the rich. That That's why it exists. And this idea that, oh, they're doing the best they can. Nope. It was an intentional plan to destroy the value of the currency. And look, the stock market, if you, if you look at it, it's up almost precisely the amount of money that was printed. Right? It was just literally, you, you created money out of thin air, you, you lent it to the banks who then lent it to hedge funds and, and individuals on margin, and they put it into you know, meme stocks and, and actually real stocks. Uh, and we pushed valuations to levels that are incomprehensible and the math doesn't work. But who owns those? Rich people. So the 1%, the and we've, you've showed this chart, right? The 1%, you know, they, they keep going like this, the average wages of the average worker. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, so, yeah. So this is for. So this is specific to. I didn't know that to, was coming. That's yeah. I know. I know. Seriously, I have mine. This. So this one is actually specifically for. I. I got this off a of tweet. I'll. Darn, I always forget uh, who to credit here. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But this is wages and salaries for credit intermediaries, and they link this with a photo of Bank of America's raising its minimum wage. You know, it, it is it is pretty crazy to look at this. I mean, the, the wage growth that you have for credit intermediaries, so let's just say investment banks instead of continuing to say credit intermediaries, commercial, but the banking system in general, you know, they basically pulled forward something that looks almost like 10 years 
of wage growth, which is pretty nuts. So this is one of those unintended consequences. Right, this mm -hmm. is theft. Mm -hmm. And it's absolute, and remember, these companies should have gone bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They were bankrupt. And we, the people, bailed them out and now they are extracting all the gain. The government should have owned them, right? should have been nationalized. And then when this equity value increased, because we saved them by keeping Fed funds so low, because remember, if you can borrow at Fed funds and lend at three, 4% guaranteed by buying treasuries, that is a riskless transaction. JP Morgan has zero lost trading days over the last four years, zero. That's impossible if you're actually trading, but they don't trade. They do arbitrage, levered, and those spoils are going to the rich, not to the average person, and that's wrong. Have you heard this this quote? I forget who to, to attribute this to, but every generation rejects the Ponzi scheme of the previous generation and then builds their own instead. Ah, I No, I haven't, but I love it, and it's yeah. so true. It's it is so, so true. true. It's, you know, first of all, I think... In, in general, it's helpful to view building different systems as being impermanent. It, it, there, there hasn't been a system or an organization or a governance structure that's ever worked for ever in human history, right? The trend is always that there's change and disruption. Yep. And I, I also think um, I also think it's, it's actually becoming a bugaboo of mine. People are overusing the word Ponzi scheme. And what I've noticed is that people right. are using the word Ponzi to describe any system that requires growth. Uh, what you're describing is economies, my friend. <laughs> if that is your definition of a Ponzi scheme, that it's mm -hmm. you need it to grow to survive, you are describing economies. So yeah, and a Ponzi scheme is not that, right? A Ponzi scheme is where you pay future participants with past participants' contributions. That is yeah. a Ponzi scheme. And so crypto is not a Ponzi scheme. An economy is not a Ponzi scheme. Now, um, if you take money from people, right, in the form of taxes, and you give it to other people, that is kind of a form of a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, again, we, we've gone back and forth on this, and, and some of the, the listeners don't like it, but, you know, I think it's the dumbest economic theory of, of a bunch of dumb economic theories. But MMT, you know, this idea that if you print so much money that the economy runs hot, then you, in your infinite wisdom, can drain which is actually an apt you know, analogy, literally the drain at the bottom of the sink, by taxing it back. Well, what did they just propose to do? Tax unrealized gains. So again, the game is we inflate these assets. They're owned by a handful of really, really rich people, disproportionately, and we're going to go take it back from them to fill our coffers. That actually is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I'm 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 thinking of uh, you, you just made me think that the the taxing of unrealized gains. I think that's a pretty silly idea. I, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I I get I get really nervous hearing about stuff like that. We we talked about this. I'm you know an entrepreneur, right? The majority of my personal net worth is tied up in equity associated with Blockworks. I've like not paid myself. I've worked for a very long time, very long hours. My hair has fallen out because of stress. Uh, in the hopes that in one day there's some sort of liquidity event it makes yeah. me it makes me it just makes me nervous to to hear people talk about stuff like and i get that this tax isn't being applied to me it's only it only applies to a couple of very very wealthy people yet but come on every no no I, I, don't 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 fool yourself you you know as well as i do uh they're coming for all of us right i mean 
this idea that it's only for billionaires is BS, right? Because after billionaires, it's sent to millionaires and then millionaires and then the average Joe. It's coming for everybody. It's just it's just like the vax mandates, right? It's just, oh, only over 100. Well, now under 100. Oh, but 25. So it's there. The once power is, you know, sniffed, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It, it's it's coming. And all of these things are last desperate grasps at failed states. And you go back yep. in history again. Every it, This is not new. This happens every single time. And, you know, it, it's, it's power grabs. It's um, how much can I get for me? Uh, and, and look, the, 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 the most sinister, right, since we're on a sinister, um, I guess this gets released on Saturday, so it'll be Sinister Saturday. <laughs> sinister um, Saturday. <laughs> and uh, is, is this OCC woman nominee? Hmm. I mean, come on. Mm. abolish the banks, abolish these things in the chart and put all the money in the Fed bank where I, and she actually said I, can confiscate your deposits should I deem I need them to quell inflation. I hadn't even heard about this, actually. Oh, God. just I mean, she's an avowed communist, right? She's a self-proclaimed communist. She's nominated for this position and she, and her mission literally is to abolish commercial banks and make everybody put their money in the fed bank and she said in written testimony and i should have the power to confiscate the deposits at mm. any time i'm like are you freaking kidding me seriously so yeah. everyone needs to opt out with a portion of their wealth, not all of it. Look, for now, and I, I've been talking about this, for now, you know, I'm still living in the United States. They're trying to make it really hard um, for me to do that on a lot of levels. But, uh, you know, so I need some fiat to live my life. But I'm going to continue to put more and more into a store of value that is, is real and solid and non-confiscatable. And... It's just a that when when I see stuff like that and like ah oh, that can't be true, it, then you look at it and like no it, it it's true right it's, it's not it's not crazy made up internet stuff that you know the fact checkers say isn't true. This is a real person who has been nominated by the leadership of our country to take a very important position that has ramifications for all citizens. Yeah. And, if, and if you're not if you're not deathly afraid of that, you're just not paying attention. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. I I mean a lot of that rhetoric has been really concerning to me. I think the the analogy that's pretty apt to use here is the Bitcoin community uses this, but I think it's applicable to all crypto as well as just a network transfer of mm-hmm. wealth from the fiat system into the crypto system. And there there were people that have made this analogy of crypto as a political movement and I think Nick Carter was one of the first to do that, I listened to a conversation with him and David Hoffman uh, talk about this. Dimitri Kofinas, outside of cryptos, uh, repeatedly compared this to a political or religious movement, yep. and I, I, you know, that didn't resonate with me until pretty recently. And I do think we're building an entirely different financial architecture over here. But I also, th- and it comes with its own set of cultural norms and values. And I think if you matched up the cultural norms and values of traditional finance with crypto, crypto is far from perfect. But I would, I would take crypto all day, every day, basically. And, uh, you know, when, when you compare it to 
what goes on in traditional finance. And you know, the last thing the last thing I'll say about this chart that's pretty interesting is one thing that Tyler and I used to talk a lot about was he had this theory of transition from uh, capital to labor. And I, you know, my, my pushback on him on capital to labor and also just inflation in general is, well, in order for that to happen, wage growth would need to happen in the U.S. And I just don't see that. I don't see that ha- how that happens when we have the relationship that we do with China, the world's factory, yada, yada. Well, I'm, I think I'm starting to change my mind on it. When you look at charts like this, it's clear wage growth is taking off. And, you know, we don't have we're the relationship with China is breaking down in real time. Whatever your yep. personal thoughts are on China, yep. it is getting worse out there. I'm not sure that's even an opinion. So, you know, concerning stuff, uh, yep. high level stuff. Yep. Okay. These next three charts go together. And I was the, the chart crime police here on my own self. So I, I, I know you're always saying chart crime, so I, I police myself. But I, I, I checked this chart out, which is uh, this is a measure of emerging market funding stress, um, which, you know, if you just looked at this chart, it would look concerning, right? It seems like mm-hmm. it's ticking back up. It's, it's at a 13 month high. But I noticed mm-hmm. that this is only from 2020 to 2021. So uh, again, similar thing here. We're looking at 2008. Uh, this is China high yield dollar bond index. Uh, so basically, this is just a measure of Credit yep. stress over in China again looks high, but yep. I wanted to look back uh, and, and zoom out to look at some further data. So this is a, a broader index of financial stress across emerging markets, and they break it down into a whole bunch of different categories here. So you've got credit stress, equity valuation, funding, safe assets, volatility, etc. And you know, I think you, you can obviously see that when there are financial crises or recession, these all of these metrics basically tend to spike. The, yep. the largest, it was pretty interesting to see being in 2008 and 2009 and not, as I would have thought, uh, in COVID times in 2020. So oh, global I think- global financial crisis was, was some serious stuff. I mean, yeah. we're talking serious stress. And, and, and people forget that, you know, that was, that was a true global event. I mean, it was, it was precipitated by you know subprime and you know lending to people who, who couldn't fog a mirror but and and securitizing assets and and slicing and dicing and making the alphabet soup salad but uh it was big and, and particularly in emerging markets because when when the capital markets in the in the largest markets the western markets seize it's bad but it's way worse if you're dependent on that liquidity uh, in those markets. And, and you know, the only thing that saved us globally in uh, 2009 was China, right? China printed $4 trillion. Hmm. Right? Everybody gives Bernanke credit. No, 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 no. China, PBOC, $4 trillion injected into the system. And, you know, we survived. And you can see the little mini stress um, in 2014-15 that, that barely even shows up, uh, that was, again, a trillion dollars from China. Uh, that's when oil was tanking down to 26 bucks. And mm. so, you know, the, and we've talked, you, you had this chart a couple weeks ago, the uh, credit impulse from China right. is what drives global liquidity. It's not really the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of Japan. Those are important, but they pale in comparison to the credit impulse. And the credit impulse in China is negative, which is uh, part and parcel why you're seeing that that huge stress in the high yield market that you showed. And they have to clean up a bunch of 
of, of bad uh, industries, not just bad companies, but bad industries. And, and they will, um, but that, that isn't, it's not as contagion-like when there's stress in China as there is if there's stress in US financial markets. And I think that's the takeaway from this chart is it's not the emerging markets that, you know, they say, oh, emerging market sneezes and the rest of the world catches a cold. No, if the U.S. sneezes, you know, the rest of the world does catch a cold. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so so basically, I think the takeaway that I have from from what you just said and from all three of these charts is that in general, it looks as if maybe there are starting to be warning signs over in China just based on credit conditions and uh, stress that are getting that's getting put on emerging markets, which I'm pretty sure that China gets lumped in here. This is a different index that gets put out by Morgan Stanley. Is China included in the MSCI? Do you know? Yeah. Yeah, but not not at the right weight. That's Got that's it. part of the problem, right? Is MSCI finally gave in, you know, three years ago, something like that. And and you know, if they did it actually on on market cap weightings, it'd be like mm-hmm. 21, 22 percent. Mm-hmm. But it's like three or four. So it's definitely oh. in the index. And you know, even though Trump tried to take it out. Um, you know, stuff that people do. I mean, it's just the, the reality, you're not going to change the reality of China being the second largest economy in the world. Just no matter how you, you know, account for it on the index, it doesn't change the fact that of, of what they are. And as much as we talk about, you know, reshoring or, or onshoring jobs and, and, and producing chips in America, nope, the chips are produced in Taiwan. And they're not coming here anytime soon. And and great, I think it's great that we, we try to bring some of those industries and, and jobs back. Um, but companies tend, by and large, uh, to act in their own best interest in, in, in profit-motivating strategies. And you know, China, for a long time, was a source of cheap labor. It no longer is. Labor costs in, in China have risen. But now, so what do you do? Go to Vietnam or... You know, you go to uh, Cambodia or Myanmar or, or whatever. And, but at some point, even those labor pools will shrink. And, you know, the one that's still the largest in terms of young people is, is India. Uh, but they just don't have the infrastructure to really make that the, the, the manufacturing hub. You know, it's an IT hub because, you know, those workers can literally work from anywhere. They're like the original work from anywhere. Right. So you right. have this, this team of research people in, in India and you come into the office at eight o'clock U.S. time and the reports are on your desk because they worked all night on them uh, and they cost, you know, $20,000 for an MBA or Ph.D. instead of, you know, $100,000 for an undergrad. So pretty amazing uh, white collar, but not not so much in the blue collar. No. You don't see a lot of made in India, you know, garments and, and things like that, but not not as much as made in China. Yeah. No, absolutely not. And so just to wrap this up, I guess, I mean, it looks like maybe potentially the beginning signs of stress, but overall, if you zoom out and look at this chart, everything's probably fine, at least for the time being. At least for um, the time being. Yeah. Speaking of stress, or at least, uh, you know, things that are not functioning probably in the way that they were intended, this is basically a measure of U.S. speculative trading volumes. This is call options traded. We're looking at a 20-day moving average. You can just see that things are spiking overall. And I, you know, I, I will say, we, we probably disagree a little bit on Tesla. I, I, I'm going to drop this in the, the, the chat or in the, the show notes. There was, I was reading this quote, 10 quotes from Elon Musk uh, last night, 
and this was some you know the author of this article had put together something which was basically trying to imply that he wasn't a particularly good leader and you know i read these quotes that he said and i was just i had a totally different interpretation i was kind of laughing to myself and Mm -hmm. i really empathize with a lot of them uh having tried to lead uh, in difficult positions and he did it at such a grand scale you know at a certain point i just kind of have to empathize but i will say one of the things that i my least favorite charts that gets pointed out to me is the deep correlation between tesla and bitcoin in general because i do view tesla as a wildly overvalued stock whatever you think of elon musk and when i look at charts like this yeah it just doesn't make me feel particularly good and i i voice this, this on the show this is um, again, not actually this, this is Ponzi, right? This, this is, uh, you, you take semi-liquid assets, right? Tesla doesn't have that much free float, actually. I mean, it's not, it's not as bad as some, but, mm. uh, in, and you look at many of the meme stocks, uh, these are simply pack of jackals situations. And, mm-hmm. and the reality is, Options make it worse because they allow people to use leverage. And levered speculative trading always ends badly. Not in the short run, right? And part of the problem here is, is differentiating between, you know, it's the two by two matrix, right? You can have a good or bad decision and you can have a good or bad outcome, right? Mm. Bad decisions with good outcomes lead to more bad decisions. Yeah. And that's what this chart is showing, right? Is, oh, I bought options on some speculative piece of crap stock and it went up. Hmm, I'll try that again. And then maybe I'll move into not such a piece of crap stock, but but a stock that's just crazy overvalued. And then it becomes a momentum game. And then, but uh, you're supposed to make good decisions with good outcomes. Right? A good decision with a bad outcome, you know, it's not the end of the world. At least you had a good process, good decision. The, the most dangerous thing in the world is in investing is a bad decision with a good outcome. And that's what this is. This is, you lock people in their house, you take away their ability to gamble on sports, right? And you give them money and they can gamble. I mean, this is just degenerate gambling. It's leveraged degenerate gambling. There's, there's, no, there's no investing here. And, and look, I've been wrong on how far you could take the extremes, right? If you just do math on Tesla, right? There's a company that has never made money outside selling tax credits for you know government deal that they cut. Aside from that, right? They, they, they've never made money. There's, there's no chance they're likely to ever make money. They actually couldn't really even pay back their debt even if they wanted to. And so by all the metrics of, of logic, it's not a very valuable company. Um, and now it trades at at a multiple of of non-existent revenue of earnings based on multiple of revenues that is incomprehensible. But it's not the worst. I mean, I've talked to this. My son's company, Snowflake, trades at a much higher multiple and is making new all-time highs. And there are a bunch of cloud stocks that trade at much higher multiples. So Tesla's not the worst offender, mm. but it's that movement. Attra- <laughs> Again, it's mostly guys, not all guys, um, and it's not. It's not a, I'm not trying to offend all the female day traders. You know, there there are some, um, but you know, it's it's like if you go to the uh, if your wife or no, wife, spouse, friend, whatever, um, tells you, hey, get me the ketchup out of the refrigerator, and a guy opens it 
It's like, there's no ketchup. And the woman walks up and says, the ketchup's right there. We can't see it because it's not moving, right? We are hunters. We only see movement. And so anything that's moving, we see. If it ain't moving, we don't see it. And that's, that's, just, that's just genetic code. And uh, this there, is the problem. The, the, the vast majority of pajama traders are males, young males. Mm. Um, many of them, quote unquote, unemployed, right? Locked down. And now they feel smart because they've made a bunch of money. And some of them are really smart. Some of them are super smart, but a whole bunch just got lucky. And um, that luck will eventually run out because math does eventually work. Now, if you plotted this chart, uh, 15 over, so 14 over 10, you know, that's about 14 out of 25. That's about a 60% increase in volume. Well, we increased the money supply by 40% over that period. So it's a roughly about the same. Mm. And so this is a devaluation of the dollar phenomenon. So that's a big portion of the change in nominal value of equities. But it's also leverage. And, and trading options, look, 85% of options expire worthless. It's a crazy stat. 85% of options expire worthless. Yeah. So... No, this it's not. You, you, your anecdote about the ketchup made me laugh. There's an expression in the Ippolito household, which is man eyes. You have man eyes yeah. because you yeah, can't yeah. see it. And yeah. I've had this. I've had this. Uh, you know, I've had this experience happen to me a million times. I, I get asked to go find something. You know, I open the pantry and I'm just standing there staring at it, staring. like a moron. And yeah. I know it's there, but I, I just can't find it. Can't I just can't see it. I just but couldn't see it. But if it's moving, baby, like if if somebody <laughs> walked behind me, I I I turn it because that's what you do. If it's moving, I can see it. Yeah. So man eye is pretty useless, unfortunately. Evolutionary adaptation there. Last thing, and then we can transfer over into crypto here. This is just it's just kind of interesting. So this is Q3 venture investments into the crypto industry by company and investor. So you're looking at Coinbase Ventures uh, as being the most prolific investing group. They made 24 investments. We're looking at Q3 of this past year. Pretty incredible. Uh, it's wow. Cool to watch. Yeah. I'm actually I mean, screenshotting that because mm. that is awesome yeah i mean that is uh i'm actually gonna go yell at my team because we're not on that list um <laughs> sorry mark no uh, no no i mean because i mean we uh we actually didn't uh close that many because we're in the middle of fundraising um now we did just close five investments last week mm. so you know we're trying to catch up but um Hey, on it's, the Q4 awesome. list, it's going to be Morgan Creek right at the top. Baby. Right at the top, baby. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I'm actually going to go yell at my team. So. <laughs> well, uh, all right, cool. So we can we can end on that for the, for the charts then. Um, and I'm sorry to uh, Mark's team if you're listening to this. We, I brought it on you there a little bit, uh, but I did. No, I did wanna... don't be sorry, baby. We we got, <laughs> we got to amp up the game. Amp up the game. Hey, it's it's going to be fun. I think over the next like six months or so, it should be. Oh, one thing I wanted to bring up, a shout out to Byron, uh, who writes our newsletter. There was a story about, he he referenced this guy, Henry Blodgett. Do you know him? Does that yeah. ring a bell oh, from .com era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, come on, I'm old. I know everybody. <laughs> you do, I know. You probably I mean, personally know him. You probably came over for dinner on Thursday. I, it's like, oh, I actually know him. I know him reasonably well. We're not like friends, but I, mm. I know him reasonably well. And, and I lived the Henry Blodgett 
story uh, yeah. in real time. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt. And I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. It's pretty unbelievable. He So I, I read this story that, that got published uh, you know, back in 1998, and he made this unbelievable uh, price, co- price target for Amazon, and that was $400. Back yep. then, stock was trading yep. at 240. He made yep. a call for 400, and it, you know made front page news. It was seen as being very sensational, etc. Now, I will say that did kind of precede the the last big leg up in the in the dot com bubble melt up. Mm-hmm. He ended up being right about Amazon. He made a lot of other calls about a lot of other companies that were wrong. And it, it, it's a funny, I will say, reading this article. I read I read this whole thing last night. It's a funny cautionary tale in how you could be dead right and dead wrong at the exact same time because. Dead right on Amazon, dead wrong on every other company that he yeah. was pumping at that time. It's just a fascinating piece of history. Well, no, it's, Should... it's fascinating in the sense that, look, he helped, you know, create uh, an industry that we take for granted, right? Which is these, these tech analysts. And, you know, because tech really wasn't a thing in the 60s and 70s. I mean, there was, there was machine tech and industrial tech, but we didn't have tech tech. Because uh, you know it's this 
technological evolution that you and I have talked about, right? 54 mainframes. So you got IBM and DEC and Wang and then 68, the microchip. We got Intel and Fairchild and then 82, the personal computer. We had Intel and Microsoft and, and Cisco. And it wasn't until 96 when this internet thing uh, came around and nobody understood it. And look, Mary Meeker and, and Henry Blodgett, I mean, they did such a great service to all of us by sticking their necks out and 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 actually trying to understand something that was at the time incomprehensible because we'd never seen it and we were trying to build something new and it's kind of what's going on in crypto now right so here we are two more iterations 2024 right which is still not here yet um and the same thing happened in the middle a little smaller in 2010 around the mobile net um but what was what was hard about that time was uh people couldn't comprehend how things were going to change, right? You had this guy, Jeff Be Bezos, saying, look, I'm going to change how people make purchases. And they're like, no, no, you're not. We go to the store and, and you know, we, we load up our cars and we go home. And the idea that, that there would be global geo-positioning systems and satellites, no one could comprehend that. We couldn't imagine the unimaginable. Now, the thing about Henry's prediction that's pretty amazing, right, is he said that before it ran, uh, like from that, you know, $2 up to whatever it hit, like uh, I think it hit $100, and, and the 400 seemed possible. And then the dot-com bubble burst, mm. and Amazon went down 94%. 94%! And... I ask people this all the time. Who bought Amazon 24 years ago and has held it to today? There are only four people. Jeff, his mom, his dad, and his ex-wife. That's it. No one else weathered that storm, even though Henry was dead right. And you should have. No one can do that. And that's why the average person didn't buy Bitcoin in 2009 and hold it to today. Yeah. Some people did. I mean, there's certainly some. but Must be small. Must be it's a really tiny, tiny, tiny. People. Or you know, it's it's like literally the the ones that that lost their keys and they they can't do anything <laughs> with it. Um, like the saddest story for me is one of my guys, his son literally was mining uh, Bitcoin in 2010 in his dorm room, and actually had a couple hundred thousand coins. Bitcoin. Oh my god! Oh no, 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 this is crazy. This is like maybe whatever it was. It, today. It's literally it some... hundreds, it's hundreds of millions, whatever the number of coins right. was to make hundreds of millions. I can't do the math right now. Right. But, but you know, computer crashed uh, and they literally sent it to the FBI saying, please, please, like we'll pay you a commission. They couldn't fix it. Wow. And gone forever, gone forever. You know, th those are cautionary tales and you hear these kind of sad stories uh, about that, man, that that breaks my heart, though. For, for that. Oh, no, it, it's 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 so, so incredibly sad. But it, you know, it's Satoshi. Again, it's why I, I'm so enamored of Satoshi Nakamoto. Again, whoever he, she, they are. I guess he he self-identified as he, but we don't really know. Right. Uh, but I'm so enamored. And he actually wrote think of the lost or stolen coins as a contribution to the community again i mean the mind just blows and my other favorite right if, if you don't 
understand it. I don't, I don't really have time to explain it to you. I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Yeah. Um, so awesome. And she's like, look, and then the last one, you know, maybe you should pick up a few just in case it catches on. Mm. Um, so anyway. That would have been really good advice. You know, one thing I wasn't around, I mean, I was alive for this, but I wasn't yeah. engaged uh, in a market sense in the dot-com era. When I think about trying to educate people about the internet versus trying to educate people in crypto, I have to imagine the internet was way harder. I mean, you have no frame of reference, right? No frame of reference for what this even is. You know, actually, when I was trying, you know, in the beginning days of Bitcoin to describe how Bitcoin worked, I was I was looked at the internet as an analogy, and I was like, how would I describe how the internet works? And I realized I had no language for it. I just, no I just take it as something that's for granted that has worked my entire life I've never questioned how it works. And mm-hmm. we, so Jason and I actually went into this very large, you know, financial media company uh, earlier this week. We did a little teach in with some of the research team. And, you know, a lot of the questions that we got now, the same questions that we got 2017, 2018. How does mining works? Isn't this mm-hmm. all just valueless? Ponzi mm-hmm. scheme, et cetera. Kind of came out with a couple of different takeaways, honestly, from that meeting. But one takeaway that I had is, I don't think a whole group of people is ever going to understand how mining and the mechanics here actually work. And I'm not 100% sure that they really need to. I don't don't really. Nope. Yeah. Don't don't understand how TCP IP works. And we're using it right now. Right. The idea that you packetize information, Mm -hmm. send it through different places, and then it comes back together like a self-assembling graphene thing. Are you kidding me? So can't can't comprehend it. And but your point is exactly well taken, Michael. Because I did live through it, because I'm the old guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> the trying to to explain uh, the internet to people was a and I'm sure people have seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Google the Bill Gates and David Letterman clip. Yeah. You know, it's only a couple of minutes long. And you know, David, Le- you know, Bill Gates trying to explain how it works, and you know, it's like information posted on these these websites, and and David Letterman's like, so you know, you could broadcast a baseball game. Right. Over the internet. Have, right. have you heard a radio? And Bill's like, well, you know, but you could watch the game whenever you want. And he's like, so you, you could record. Have you heard of a tape recorder? I know. And, and, and it's just so great. And now, then the, then the sinister, the sinister Saturday, mm. uh, the sinister part was, you know, Bill saying, oh, but we don't need the internet. It's the intranet. We need the Microsoft intranet. Now we got Zuck saying you need the, the Zuckerverse. Right. Uh, Zuckerverse. No, 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 no. No, we don't want, and I tweet about this, right? The idea of, of a centralized organization controlling the biggest decentralized thing in the world is comical. I mean, it's absolutely comical. And so, but the internet was, I love your, your description, right? There, there was no language for it. Yeah, no language. And, and now, I say this all the time, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, to quote Newton, that the, inter, the internet was built on client server technology, which the technical term for that is it sucked. I mean, mm-hmm. it was horrible technology. And, you know, Hayes modems, the eh, 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 connection, and three minutes to wait for your computer to boot up, and four days for a movie to download. No, none of that was. So we needed broadband, and then we needed geo, you know GPS, and then we needed these other things to build on top. And now the internet is so powerful that now we don't get this this kind of small linear. Now we're going to get this exponential right. growth in the crypto and the metaverse. And 
And that's why it is a little bit easier to explain, but it's not super easy to explain. And there are people, to your point, that are never going to get it, and you don't need to, because eventually it's going to be invisible. We're not going to talk about crypto. It's just going to happen. Your car, your autonomous vehicle, will literally pay the charging station as you drive by it, right? Because you won't even really have to stop. It'll just be waves in the air. And um, so it it is a fascinating experiment to be to be living through which is uh convincing people of something that they will all adopt right right yeah all of us every single one even the haters use the internet every single day totally yeah 100 yeah. i also think even the assumption of the internet the assumption for the internet to be noteworthy and valuable was the, look at the amount of time that I get these notifications on my phone. I hate them. That the amount of screen time that you do per day. <laughs> yeah, just don't look. It's a disgusting amount. It's disgusting. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that would have been, I think, the toughest assumption that you really needed to get over in order to understand the internet back then. And I know we're, we're running low on time here, but, you know, crypto, it, it has its own set of assumptions in general. But I almost think it's easier to understand. You know, on the, the Bitcoin thing, it's like, is this going to be a valuable monetary asset? I don't know. If you still don't even understand how that's possible, I, I, I'm not really – you can disagree, but I don't understand how you don't understand because you kind of just have to wake up and look at it with your eyes. And, you know, I lost my train of thought. No, no, you were probably going to – there were these – these dot-com bubble things that, that were just vaporware and they and they literally vaporized and, and went away and they didn't mm -hmm. recover like Amazon. No. And there are crypto projects that are going to vaporize and disappear and go away and people are going to point to them and say, see, that's a failure. No, pets.com does not prove that the internet was bad. It proved that that idea was ahead of its time and we needed more infrastructure. Now we have Chewy.com. It's a $30 billion company. And... The failure of single businesses built on technological platforms does not discredit the platform. And the idea that, that the greatest innovation in money, right? And there's only been one money in the history of mankind, and that's gold. Everything else is currency or credit. Money, which has existed for 5,000 plus years, the next 5,000 is digital. And digital money is better than physical money. And not that physical money is going away. Gold will still be around and it'll still be, but it just won't be as important. And Bitcoin will. And then there are other things that will be the trust net. So we're going to talk about the trust net. Okay. My term. Um, that, like that because ultimately that's what blockchain is. It is a source of truth that doesn't Agreed. require a middleman. And that truth that absolute truth of everything, ownership, property rights, everything, like NFTs. Stop calling them NFTs if it makes you think of JPEGs. Call it digital property rights, because that's what it is. We're going to everything in the world will be tokenized and we'll own them through digital property rights. And the idea that this won't happen is silly. The yeah. idea that you should ignore it and maybe it'll go away is silly. And Okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this a lot and it, I went, I went really crazy, uh, like super excited. I'm an excitable guy to begin with and I'm prone to hyperbole. Are you? I was, excitable I was, guy? Yeah. I said, yeah, but I was like, I was in another dimension yesterday 
Um, and maybe it was because the camera wouldn't work on the broadcast that I was doing. And so I was anon or anon, whatever, whatever you call it. And maybe that was it. I, I just, I mean, I was, I was in fuego, um, dare I say. And because uh, no one knows what I'm talking about. Dan Patrick, who actually kind of looked like, I've actually been called Dan Patrick before. Mm. Um, in fact, I was at a football game once and this guy comes up to me at Notre Dame and says, oh, Mr. Patrick, Mr. Patrick. I'm like, I'm not Dan Patrick. I, I know you want to be incognito. Will you just sign? I'm like, no, fine. I will not. sign I will sign Dan, Dan Patrick's name for you. Yeah. Um, this guy's like, yeah, Dan, Dan Patrick. Patrick, I met him. Most humble guy. <laughs> Most humble guy you've ever met. <laughs> He's awesome. Um, yeah. This was what I was going to say, and then we can close it out. I know we're low on time here. I've been saying this. I've had this idea that I've not been able to express, and I finally came across it from Naval Ravikant and Chris Dixon, which is this idea of skeuomorphism. So I've noticed in crypto, people tend to come to this space, and they jam their own worldview on it. And I say yeah. people. I did the same thing. I was like, oh, there's this thing. So I understood supply chain because I used to be a consultant. And yeah. I used to be, okay, I can use this for that. And what I've noticed in the years is that virtually to a T, every time someone does that, it's unsuccessful. Tokenization of real world assets, probably something that's going to happen. But I've noticed a lot of people jam that on, you know, in lieu of just looking at what's working right now. Mm -hmm. And it turns out mm -hmm. there's this term. Uh, there was a great podcast with Tim Ferriss uh, and Naval Ravikant and Chris Dixon. And they talked about this idea of skeuomorphism, which is stop trying to jam old world ideas onto a new emergent thing and just understand what the medium does. If you had approached the internet from what problems can I use for the internet to solve my problems today, you, you, you might have come up with Vonage if you were lucky, or you just came up with something that was totally useless, and you would have missed out on all these new and exciting things like Facebook, right? which were things that you could never have done before. So mm -hmm. I used to express this idea in crypto is if it does something, it's bearish. Nobody liked that. <laughs> That's a bad way of describing it. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, skeuomorphism, I'd check that phrase out. And if you're in this industry, honestly, just lean into what's actually happening. There are going to be a lot of bumps along the way. But, man, is it going to be exciting? So I know, I know we're over love time. It. No, no, look, I love it. I, I love that the skeuomorphism, a new hashtag for me, uh, will be all over my, my Twitter stream later. Um, again, Michael, what I love about these conversations is we we go into all kinds of important topics, but we always come back to uh, this evolutionary process, mm -hmm. and that you know resisting evolution is bad for your health. Uh, embracing evolution and and spending time in thought, you know, you obviously do this a lot, right? You you actually stop and you think about things and you, you contemplate things and you curate. And, and that's why I think the value of this for, for listeners is, but all of us need to, to, to get away from uh, the parroting, right? Most people, if you ask them what they think about something, the first thing out of their mouth is someone else's idea or words, right? They saw it on Twitter, they heard right. it on TV. And what they need to do, what we all need to do, because I'm guilty of it too, is we need to take in that stuff, but then we need to, to sit with it and we need to go out and be alone and, and go into solitude. And if you've never read Solitude and Leadership uh, by uh, Dreeswitz, you should. Uh, it's, it's amazing. One of the best six pages I've ever read. Um, and, and it just talks about this, this ability to take yourself out for time and think and, and try, even though it's hard, to imagine the unimaginable, 
try to to think as as Naval and and Chris Dixon are talking about try to think not through the lens of well how could I make a better bookstore well how rather how could I make information bi-directional yeah oh geez that's big that that's huge okay what are some applications social media uh, Twitter um, you know Okay, now let's talk about crypto. We, we're going to make value bi-directional. Oh, okay. So it's not just tokenizing a building and fractionalizing it. It's literally changing humanity. Okay, so I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole. But you know, Axie Infinity is changing humanity for the better. And people are like, oh, that's bullshit. No, it's a game. Like, is it? Is it? It's I mean, evolving. People are changing their life by being involved in a game that allows them to convert their time to value and make that value bi-directional and have other people who value their time more highly because they're more you know, along in the socioeconomic scale to then exchange something of value, crypto or fiat, for those items of value. And that's improving lives all around the world as we speak. And it is an exponential thing. And people are like, no, it's just a game. I'm like, it's not just a game. And yeah. everything we're talking about is skeuomorphic. What was it? Skeuomorphic? Yeah, skeuomorphic. It's this idea, yeah. don't, you know, try to do, basically the way I sum it up is if you got a new and emergent medium, then try to leverage that medium to do things that were impossible before instead of trying to get it to solve existing pro the problems that already existed. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a quite a good principle. And you know, just a note on learning in general, that that idea of you know, there, there's actually a there's I was again, a psych psych major. Uh, and there, there's a there's a reason people are better learners when they're young. And actually babies are incredible learners. They they I mean, think about how difficult it would be try to just listen to a foreign language, L listen mm -hmm. to a movie on a foreign language, see how much you pick up. Babies mm -hmm. learn language for the first time strictly by just listening to people speak. It's unbelievable. Exactly. Exactly. The number of neural links in your brain consistently declines over the course of your lifetime. That's why your views harden. You, people think about it as logical. Oh, I'm older and I get experience. I know. Whatever. There's a, there's a substrate in your brain. You get less, fewer and fewer connections over time. You become a worse learner. There's this idea of neuroplasticity. You need to actively stoke that idea to continue yeah. to be a good learner. Most people don't Amen. do it. Well, and back to, you know, we'll, we'll end on, on the sinister, sinister Saturday theme. Uh, think about the dystopian reality that the bulk of our politicians that control the world today have bad neoplasticity, yeah. uh, neuroplasticity, uh, because they're, you know, late seventies and eighties, yeah. and that's a that's a frightening thought. It is an absolutely frightening thought. I think we're going through. I buy into these frameworks. I think we are going through a fourth turning transition. And guess yeah. what? I, I will say, historically, that's not usually great, but we are going through a transition at one point or the other. And my, the optimist, the optimist in me says. At the end of the day, at least we'll end up with a new system. So with that, Amen. Uh, Sinister Amen, Saturday, brother. but with an optimistic ending. Mark, I will see you same time next Friday, my man. All right. Cheers. Good to see you, man.